we're going to continue to make our way through the Gospel of Mark until Easter Sunday when we will finish the Gospel of Mark um, in chapter 16 on Easter Sunday about the story of Jesus rising again from the dead. After Easter, uh, we'll start a brand new series going through the book of Jonah. I'm excited about that. And uh, so two things. One, be praying for us and as we get ready to go through that. And two, you might want to be thinking about reading through that book um, if you have a, you know, an iPhone or an Android phone, I think you download an app that allows you to listen to the Bible read. Um, that oftentimes what I'll do is before I teach through a book, I'll just listen to the book over and over again. And I think the book of Jonah probably takes maybe 15 minutes, 15 minutes to read through the whole thing. There's only four chapters. It's really short. Um, so just be reading the Bible, you know, reading the passage, reading it, letting it get into your heart, soak it up, think about it, and asking God what do you want to speak to you through that great book. So, um, Today we're going to be taking a look at Mark chapter 14, so you guys should open up to Mark chapter 14. We'll be picking up at verse 53, I'll have the uh, verse up on the screen, um, but we also have Bibles in the back. Don't want you guys to necessarily uh, rely upon what's up on the screen. Uh, we provide that for you guys as a convenience, but not as a means so you guys leave your Bibles at home. Uh, make sure you bring your Bibles so that we study the Bible here. Uh, we have Bibles in the back, grab one if you need one. Mark chapter 14 is where we're at, we'll pick it up at verse 53. This is the account of Jesus uh, being arrested, and he will be brought before the uh, religious leaders, and he will then give an account for what he's been doing up to this point, ultimately leading to his death. So I'll pick it up at verse 53. We have a large passage of scripture to cover. We'll be reading it down to the uh, end of chapter 14, which is around verse 53 to about 72. So we have a lot of verses to cover. Let me read, and then I'll pray, and then we'll get to work beginning to uh, understand what this all has to do. So just listen real carefully to what's being talked about with regard to the final hours of Jesus' life there right after the garden. This is in verse 53. And they led Jesus to the high priest and all the chief priests and the elders and the scribes that came together and Peter followed him at a distance right into the courtyard of the high priest and he was sitting with the guards and warming himself by the fire. Now the chief priests and the whole council were seeking testimony against Jesus to put him to death but they found none for many bore false witness against him, but their testimony did not agree. And some stood up and bore false witness against him, saying, We heard him say, I will destroy this temple that was made with hands, and in three days I will build another not made with hands. And even about their testimony, they did not agree. And the high priest stood up in the middle, and he asked Jesus, Have you no answer to make? What is it that these men testify against you? And he remained silent. And he made no answer. Again, the high priest asked him, Are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed? And Jesus said, I am. And you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming in the clouds of heaven. And the high priest tore his garment and said, What further witness do we need? You have heard his blasphemy. What is your decision? And they all condemned him as deserving death. And some began to spit on him and cover his face and strike him, saying to him, prophesy. And the guards received him with blows. And as Peter was below in the courtyard, one of the servant girls and the high priest came and seeing Peter warming himself, looked at him and said, you also were with the Nazarene, Jesus. But he denied it, saying, I neither know nor understand what you mean. And he went on out into the, court, out into the gateway and the rooster crowed. And the servant girl saw him and began again to say to the bystanders, This man is one of them. But again, he denied it. And after a little while, the bystanders again said to Peter, Certainly you are one of them, for you are a Galilean. But he began to invoke a curse on himself and to swear, I do not know this man of whom you speak. And immediately the rooster crowed a second time. And Peter remembered how Jesus had said, Before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. And he broke down and he wept. God, we ask you right now that you would just open our eyes to understand what it is that you have to speak to us through this. God, it's so easy for us to just read the Bible and just simply glean little truths and trinkets of information that really don't ever change us. They might make us better at knowing certain facts. But they never really truly change. They never really penetrate and truly transform our hearts and God, that's what we need. We don't just need facts. We need revelation that will change us. God, we need a glimpse, an ability to see you, to hear what you're saying, Jesus, that as we hear, 
that it would open the eyes of our hearts and allow us to see who you really are. God, that we would either just straight up deny you, as what's described here, or totally worship you. But God, a sense of indifference, a sense of just apathy, just it's, there's no place for that. So God, I pray that you would allow us to see who you are and to determine, decide uh, who will follow. So we just commit this time in your hands, God. Uh, have your way with us, way with our hearts, and bring your revelation to us and let it change us. We ask all of these things in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Um, I want to start off by basically reading a quote. It's a quote from a guy by the name of N.T. Wright. He's a New Testament scholar, and I think he best sort of summarized everything that has kind of gone on up until this point. I don't have it up on the screen. Just listen to what he says. He says, Jesus was betrayed by one associate, obvious Judas, forsaken by ten more, and then now publicly and bitterly renounced by his closest friend. Obviously, that's Peter. He stands alone, defenseless before the Jewish court. What Jesus has to do he has to do all by himself. No one else can give their life as a ransom for many. No one else can bring Israel's story of failure and redemption to its climax. If he is the Messiah, there comes a moment when he has to act solo, and that moment's arrived. The way that N.T. Wright puts it, I think, is just totally right on. That here, what we see is Jesus completely left all by himself. There's no one with him. He is totally solo. Everybody's abandoned him, even his closest friends. Jesus is now standing before the highest court of the religious world back in that day. Now, again, you got to kind of put yourself into the context. In that day, in first century Judaism, if you were part of the Jewish community, in other words, if you were Jewish, part of the nation of Israel, um, there was no alternative religion for you. I mean, you were Jewish. You followed God. You had some connection with the temple. To turn your back on that or to somehow become sort of an enemy of that wasn't just like you being like, ah, you know, I'm going to be an atheist, or I'm going to be an agnostic, or I'm not going to follow God, I'm not going to go to church anymore. It meant that you would, you would actually be sort of uh, identified as such. You were a rebel. Uh, the, the, the propensity for you would not just simply go on living your life kind of a-religious, that you would be noticed uh, as somebody that is actually not just against religion, but you're against the state of Israel itself. Uh, you would lose your name. You would lose perhaps your vocation. You might even lose where you live. You have the potential of losing every single thing about you. In some ways, it might be kind of similar to, let's say, if you lived during the Middle, Middle Ages, during a time when the Roman Empire was sort of at its zenith. And you were, in essence, saying, you know, I don't follow the Catholic Church anymore. I'm done. Like, that's nice in today's culture. You can say that in America. You can be like, and I'm not going to go to Calvary still anymore. That's fine. You're not going to lose your job over that. No one's going to get mad at you necessarily. Um, you might not lose status because you just go to another church or you might not even go to church at all. You have the freedoms to do that. In some cultures, for you to just walk away from something like that is like for you to walk away into a death sentence. And this is what's happening with Jesus. He is basically now being confronted by not just the religious establishment in terms of you know, religion, but in terms of the powerhouses that be. Jesus was literally standing alone in front of the most powerful court within Israel of that day. And so Jesus is basically threatened with the loss of everything, most preeminently his life. So this is what's happening. So there's three things I really want to take a look at here in this storyline. Is First of all, we'll take a look at Jesus' condemnation. Second thing we'll take a look at is Jesus' claim. Then third thing we'll basically take a look at and finish with is, what does all this mean? Because really at the end of the day, if all we're simply doing is studying facts in the Bible and having them sort of disconnected with our day-to-day -day life, then I don't think we're letting the Bible do for us or lead us the way that the Bible is intended to lead us. In other words, if you want to look at it this way, we should be doing what I'll describe as theology for life. The point is of studying the Bible, the point of studying theology, the point of understanding who Jesus is, which is what theology is, the study of God, is so that it would change us. So that we would live differently, that we would love people differently, that we would act differently, that we would think about our lives differently, the way that we live, the way that we give our money, the way that we spend our time with other people, the way that we invest, even in people that we dislike. It should change us in every particular way. And this is what we want to sort of finish with, is trying to ask the question, what does all of this mean for us? But first of all, uh, we've got to deal with some issues that are at the heart of 
sort of the narrative or the drama that's going on in front of us that Mark uh, very clearly points out for us. So first of all, we need to deal with the issue of Jesus' condemnation. In short, what's happening here is the judge. I mean, this is the irony in which Mark's writing. The judge of all the earth is being judged. The creator who created all things is being condemned. This is the absolute irony in the story here. In short, in a lot of ways, what's happening is the very thing that a lot of us as humans have always longed to have happened. Some of you are like, what? What are you talking about? Let me, ex- let me explain what I mean. There's a tendency for human beings in our fallenness to find somebody to blame for things that are going wrong, wrong in our lives or going wrong in this world. Is it not? Is that not how we operate? We look for somebody. We look for something. But here's the problem. I, I heard a story um, that there was sort of a play that was done around uh, shortly after World War II. I'm not even sure who wrote the play. I'm not even sure if I can even remember where I heard this, but I'll try to give you the best bits and pieces of what I can remember from it. But in the storyline, it went something like this, that after uh, Nazi Germany took place, uh, there was basically a tribunal, which people, and this actually happened, but in the storyline it was also happening, where they're trying to figure out who to blame. And so kind of in the tribunal, there's sort of the question of like, we should blame the, uh, the German people because they allowed Hitler to do what he did. You know, they gave him a place. They didn't stop him. They didn't do something to eliminate uh, their leader. And others were like, no, 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 we should blame, you know, like the, the military leg of Hitler's government. I mean, they had more power than the common people. They, were, they should have stepped in and done something. They should have figured out some sort of a way or an attempt to overthrow him, but they didn't. And then obviously the question keeps, you know, they're like, you know, you can't blame us. We had people over us. So, you know, blame our leaders, the, the generals and the heads of us, the leaders over us. And then ultimately it gets, you know, you know Hitler and so on and so forth. And, but Hitler's dead, of course. Um, it keeps going higher and higher. And then finally someone's like, who should we blame for all of the deaths that happened during World War II? And someone kind of throws out, we should blame God. I mean, God allowed it to happen. And so in the storyline... Basically, the author of the story basically points out, he says, you know, really what the people are asking for and what they want, they're kind of creating sort of this mock scenario. What we want is we want God to come into our world. We want God to take the stand and pay. We want to condemn God for, in essence, the sin that everybody to some degree contributed, played a part in. And the reality is, this is exactly what's happening. God did come into flesh and blood. God did come and take the stand. Not for sins that he committed. Not for wickedness that he had done. Not for evil that he had created. But he does so on behalf of others. That God will be judged for the sins of others. This is the irony that's happening here in the passage. So the judge will be judged. So let's take a look at Jesus' condemnation. There's basically four things that the religious establishment are, in essence, leveraging against Jesus and condemning Jesus for, bringing in terms of accusations against Jesus, four charges. We'll try to go through these one by one. And I realize some of this may be a little bit dense, all right? In other words, uh, we could read through this and kind of think, what's going on here? There's a lot of talking going on, a lot of things happening, not making a lot of sense. I realize maybe sometimes when we read the Bible, we can read through things and it doesn't make a lot of sense. Certain things can be said that uh, don't really come out and grab us. and We just sort of read it and it's no big deal. Um, and yet the reality is it's, it's good sometimes to just pause and really try to dissect it, to unpack it, to explore it, uh, to look at it little bit by little bit. Um, because what happens is that allows us, that sets us up to catch the full flavor of really what's happening. I really want to try to do that. Okay, I realize it might demand a little bit of work, but I know that you guys truly take the Bible seriously. You're here because you take the Bible seriously. You're here because you take God seriously. I think it would be well worth our effort to really try to unpack this a little bit. So I'm going to take a look at the four charges that are basically brought against Jesus. The first charge is really for his disdain against the temple. And earlier on in Mark chapter 11 and 12, what happens is that Jesus is basically pronouncing a judgment against the temple. We see that in the cursing of the fig tree, and we see that in Jesus' proceeding, um, acting out in the temple where he takes a whip, and he basically drives out the money changers, and he pronounces his judgment over them, saying, this should have been a house of prayer, and yet you guys have turned it into a den of 
thieves. In other words, what Jesus is really saying there, most scholars would agree, is that he's basically pronouncing a condemnation against the temple. He's rendering a judgment against the temple. In other words, the temple should have been a place where all the nations of the world could come, whether Jew or Gentile, and pray to God, seek God, have a sacrifice offered for them where they can meet with God, where they can hear God, where they can draw near to God, and God would answer their prayers, and God would forgive them of their sins. In other words, God would be a God to all the nations, and that would be a house of prayer for all the nations. In other words, to put it another way, Israel was blessed by God, so it would be a blessing not just to other Jews, but to go beyond the border of Jews into all the world. So whoever you are, whatever color skin you are, whatever type of background you're from, whatever type of paganism you may have come out of, God had originally desired for his people Israel to be blessed by his grace in order to be a blessing through his grace to all the nations of the world. And yet the temple, which sort of epitomized the people of Israel, had fallen into kind of this sense of being broken. And Jesus pronounced this judgment over it, which was then misinterpreted by the people bringing this charge against Jesus for being or showing disdain towards the temple. Now again, this is a, this is a pretty serious charge. Um, the closest thing would be, let's say for example, if you lived in Saudi Arabia and you met Jesus or whatever, or you just were not going to be Muslim anymore, and then you made accusations against Mecca. You started saying bad things against Mecca. Chances are, you'll die. Like, you can't say, I mean, we know this, obviously we've seen this in the news. You know, a movie gets done about, you know, um, Muhammad or whatever, and blood shed. I mean, the reality is that there's a tendency for this type of stuff to kind of become incendiary. And any type of speak or talk against the temple, this very sacred site for the Jews, is going to be viewed with a sense of incendiary response. And so they are charging Jesus with disdain for the temple. The second charge is that they're charging Jesus being a false prophet. We see this because immediately after this, we're told that they basically put a bag over Jesus' head, started punching him in the face, and telling him, uh, prophesy. In other words, tell us who you are. If you're somebody that can read the future, if you're somebody that knows what's going on in the dark or in the secret, then tell us who just hit you. It's their way of mocking Jesus. Now, the thing you got to understand with regard to Israel's history and prophets, there were good prophets that spoke forth God's word, that represented God clearly, that foretold and foretold what God was going to do. But then Israel also had its history of false prophets. A false prophet would basically be someone that misled Israel, that took Israel off of the path of following God and led Israel into a path of death and darkness. And what they're basically saying to Jesus is that Jesus had a following and that the miracles and the signs and the wonders that Jesus is doing are not signs and wonders and miracles of a true prophet, but signs, wonders, and miracles of a false prophet. So the third charge that they're making against Jesus is that he claimed to be the Messiah. Now again, I've got to unpack this a little bit further, another sort of unpacking. We've got to look at the word Messiah. And we've been talking about the word Messiah, but if you haven't been with us for that long, um, the word Messiah basically can also be translated as just simply king. That Jesus is a king, and that the Jews had long been holding on to the promise of the Bible that God would one day raise up a Messiah or a king. The king would come after or out of the lineage of King David. King David was the greatest of all Israel, or greatest of all Israel's kings, and that they had this hope that one day God would raise up a king. And this king, whoever it is, whenever he comes, he will be identified and notified as being someone that comes in and he, he cleanses the temple from its disrepute, he is one that pushes back the oppression of the uh, oppressors, of the evildoers. And if you lived in first century, who were the evildoers that you wished were not hassling you? It's the Romans. So for the Jews, in the first century context, the king that they had envisioned in their mind that would come, that would rescue them, was not someone that would just, you know, give them promises and say, you're going to go to heaven all one day when you die, and you're going to feel really good until then. But the king that they were looking for was one that was going to come and fight. He was a military political king that would fight Rome and push off Roman's yoke and oppression off of them. So this is what they're looking for. In other words, you can put it this way. They had what I would describe as messianic 
expectations. They had an expectation of this Messiah. So let's, for example, say, if you show up first century and you're like, I'm the Messiah, or I'm Israel's king. Now, there's technically no law against you saying that. Any more than if you were to like, walk downtown St. Louis and be like, I'm the president of the United States of America. In other words, the response that people would give you downtown is the same response they would give you first century. They would laugh at you. They would think you're crazy. They might lock you up. But it's not worthy of death. There's nothing wrong with going around claiming that you're the Messiah unless you have a large following. Jesus did. He had a lot of people following him. Now, here's the thing. There's, it, there's one thing that Caesars hate. You know what it is? Rival thrones. They hate rivals because that's the way all kings are. Every king, everybody who has their own little domain, hates it when somebody else comes up and has more to offer than them. All right, you know what this is like, right? And we oftentimes operate and act as like our own little kings. So in other words, if you think you're good looking and you see somebody else that's way better looking than you, what happens? You kind of get frustrated. If you think you're a good musician and someone is better musician than you shows up on the scene, you're a little bit jealous and maybe angry. If you think you have a lot of money and a lot of bling from your money and somebody else comes up on the scene with a bigger car than you, better rims than you, bigger stereo system than you, bigger house than you, more money flopping out of their pockets than you, you might get a little bit jealous because that's the way kings act is they get angry with any type of rival. And this is what was happening. And this is what was potentially going to happen is that Jesus comes on the scene and the accusations against him is that he is a Messiah, but the, he also has a large following of people coming after him. And the problem is, is the religious establishment did not recognize Jesus as their king. So they actually saw this as an opportunity. Right? So here's the opportunity in the mind of the religious system. For them, it's like claiming to be a Messiah is not a crime. What is a crime to Rome is to have someone claim to be a Messiah and have a large following. So in their minds, their kind of wheels are spinning. They're thinking, we're looking for an opportunity to kill Jesus. We don't think Jesus is our king. Others might, but we don't. So therefore, if we can give Jesus over to the, to the, to the Roman government, which was embodied in the first century by a guy named Pilate, then we have this thing nailed in the bag. We can guarantee that Jesus will be crucified because the Jews had no power to crucify. Um, the Romans had the power to crucify, and he would be rival thrones, which is, by the way, why Jesus was crucified, because he claimed to be a king. So here's what happens. So the first charge, to stain for the temple. Second charge, Jesus claimed to be a false, or Jesus was a false prophet. That's what they're charging against him. Third claim, uh, charge was that Jesus claimed messiahship. And we'll come back to that more, so I'll unpack that a little bit further in a second here. And then the fourth charge was blasphemy. And I'll come back to this one in just a second. But at the end of all of this, we're told about verse 64 uh, that it says, you've heard his blasphemy, therefore, let's kill him. So, in other words... The sum total of everything that was going on, whatever it was that Jesus said, whoever it was that he claimed to be, it was summarized in the mind of the religious establishment of the day that Jesus has basically violated and broken some form of oath or relationship or covenant with God, and therefore he's worthy of death. Does that make sense? So I want to move on to the next point, which is Jesus' claim. So whatever it was that Jesus said obviously sort of created this fire. So I want to try to unpack this a little bit. Again, verse 62, we've got to read it. And then the high priest, it says in verse 61, came to Jesus and they asked him, are you the Christ of the Son of the Blessed? Now the particular reading or the phrase that's sort of unpacked there, are you the Christ or you are the Christ, is basically a question. It's a statement but put into a question type of a, a way. You're the Christ. It's actually the exact same uh, Greek layout as when Peter was asked by Jesus, who do people say that I am? Peter's like, you're the Christ. Which was said as a statement. This same phrase is actually used here, but as a question. So you can kind of put it this way. Think of, I, I kind of envision it this way. Now, one of the problems with reading any story is you rarely are able to get emotion or any type of um, emphasis upon particular words. So you sometimes might need to use a little bit of uh, uh, a sanctified imagination. So here's my sanctified imagination. I hope it's sanctified at work in the passage here. I think maybe what's going on is the chief priest is sizing Jesus up. 
He's looking at Jesus. He realizes that Jesus has nobody following him. Peter, simultaneously, kind of interwoven in the storyline as a parallel, is right simultaneously betraying and denying Jesus. Um, the ten other disciples left in the garden. Judas betrayed him. Everybody has totally abandoned Jesus. Here's Jesus alone before the religious leadership, and the religious leader sizes Jesus up and is like, so you're the Messiah. Kind of like, right? Where's your kingdom? Where's your people? Everyone's abandoned you. You're the Messiah? you got to be kidding me. That's kind of the way it's basically being communicated. And so what's happening here is then Jesus responds to that particular question slash statement to some degree. And here's what Jesus then says in verse 62. I am, and you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power, coming with the clouds of heaven. And then the high priest tore his garments and he said, what further witness do we need or witnesses do we need? You have heard his blasphemy and they condemned him as deserving of death. So I want you to understand a little bit about what's happening here. First of all, Jesus uh, says the phrase, I am. And a lot of scholars see what Jesus may be saying and by using that or calling that particular phrase, I am, uh, as a way, as an Old Testament allusion to, re, uh, to remind themselves of the name of God. For example, in the book of Exodus, Moses was called upon by God to be this deliverer. Moses goes to this flaming bush. He's having dialogue with God. God basically calls Moses. He says, I want you to go deliver my people. Moses says, you know, every other, you know, leader has a God, and his God has a name. Um, but you've never told me your name, so what's your name? God says, I'll tell you my name. My name is I Am. And so Moses says that he has the name of God, and other ways it can be translated is um, Y-H-V-H or Y-H-W-H. Uh, it's uh, oftentimes described as the unpronounceable name of God. It's one of the reasons why people oftentimes argue and discuss, you know, how do you pronounce God's name? Because there's actually no vowels in the actual spelling of the word. It's why some of your translations might actually use uh, a, a way of spelling it that says capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D. That's the way of basically signifying this particular word, Yahweh or Jehovah. And the point of the matter is, is that this is sort of the, um, the unspoken name of God. And so some scholars see Jesus standing here saying, I am, as a sort of an Old Testament allusion to saying, I am. I am Yahweh. I am God. I am He. Come here. But as Jesus goes on to unpack and to respond and to answer the question, what He does is He basically calls together two Old Testament passages. Now, again, this is sort of uh, where to some of us, uh, it might be a little bit foreign to understand really what Jesus, what Jesus is doing here or why uh, the leaders, the leadership responded the way they did, by tearing their clothes. So I've got to unpack this again a little bit further, all right? You guys all right with all this? You guys following? Not falling asleep yet? Okay. Um, so as we kind of go a little bit deeper in this, one thing we need to understand is that Jesus quotes two Old Testament passages that would have had great significance. Um, let me give an example. If, for instance, I was claiming to be the reincarnation of George Washington. Now, I don't believe in reincarnation, um, but let's just say I was trying to make a convincing argument that I am the reincarnation of George Washington. And part of my argument was to say, the reason why you can trust that I am the reincarnation of George Washington is because I cut down the cherry tree. Now, if you don't know anything about any folklore of George Washington, you'd be like, cut down the cherry tree? That's weird. Like, what does that have to do with reincarnation of George Washington? The only people that would know that are people that are familiar with the folklore, the fairy tale around in that. Now, the Bible, Jesus is quoting here, is not folklore. It's not fairy tale. But it would have been and would have had sort of that same type of significance that there are storylines that basically emphasize certain truths. And so when Jesus uses the phrases that he does in his argument or response to the high priest, what Jesus is doing is he's calling on two Old Testament passages that were filled and rich with what I would describe as messianic overtones. So what Jesus is going to do, first of all, he's going to quote from Psalm 110. And, he's, and the Psalm 110 basically says this, The Lord says to my Lord, 
sit at my right hand until I make your enemies my footstool. The phrase, sit at my right hand, again, it's, a, it's an idiom that implies a position of great honor. So if, if, you know, if we were to be reclining at a table, and if I were to say, hey, come sit by me at my right hand, that would basically be a way of showing to you and everybody else, you're the one of greatest honor. So what Jesus is saying is that this particular passage in Psalm 110 is oftentimes referred to as a messianic psalm. In other words, it's looking forward to this king, whoever this king is. And again, keep in mind, at this time in the story, there's a lot of people that don't have a name to give to whoever this king is. The, the, the king is nameless. There's a lot of Jews that are trying to figure out, you know, we, we know the king will come, but we don't know who he is. But here's Jesus saying, in essence, he says, I am, and you will see the Son of Man, me, seated at the right hand. That's a claim to Messiahship. The second claim that Jesus makes is in uh, Daniel chapter 7, verse 13, which basically goes like this. Behold, the clouds of heaven, there came one like the Son of Man. Again, there's that Son of Man terminology or language. He says, to the Ancient of Days. Now, there's no doubt, all scholars would agree, that the phrase, Ancient of Days, is a reference to the King of all kings, God. God the Father, God who inhabits eternity. That is the Ancient of Days. But this phrase, or this passage that comes up in the book of Daniel, that whoever this is, that this person that comes to the Ancient of Days, it says that he is one that's like the Son of Man, but he will come with the clouds of heaven. Now, again, clouds of heaven needs to be unpacked. Again, the Bible's filled and rich with all sorts of idiom and metaphor and picture. And this phrase, uh, in the clouds, also carries the same type of significance and weightiness. The, uh, we have clouds in our atmosphere. We go outside, and I think there's some clouds out there right now. Those are clouds in what we describe in our atmosphere, in the sky, in the heavens. There are other clouds, or the cloud, the way the Jews would have described this, the cloud of God. That cloud is not a cloud that's in the heavens, in terms of atmospheric heavens, but that is the cloud that's in heaven, God's dwelling. It is the cloud, the glory, oftentimes described as the Shekinah, the presence, the weightiness of God. What Jesus is saying here, that not only am I the king fulfilling the messianic prophecies, but I'm also going to be vindicated by the Ancient of Days. And I will come, next time you see me, I will be in the clouds, the Shekinah, the glory, being carried by God himself, vindicated. Referring to, in just three short days, Jesus would indeed rise from the dead. He would be vindicated. It's absolutely amazing what Jesus is doing here. So he's basically, in just simply one sentence, one response, in, in essence, he's, he's taking two passages and in short, he's saying, yes, what you have declared about me in the temple is true. It does stand under judgment. It will be replaced by something greater, something bigger. Yes, second charge, I am the true prophet, not a false prophet, not a prophet misleading Israel, not a prophet taking Israel down the path of death and darkness, but I am the true prophet sent from God to speak forth life and light to lead them into the presence of God. And yes, I am the Messiah, the King. Yes, I have royal authority. And yes, even though you will exercise your might, the limited, delegated might that I gave to you over me to put me to death, I will be vindicated. Amen. I mean, this is amazing what Jesus is saying here. This is so shocking, so amazing, that the chief priest... Now again, think in your mind, the chief priest would be equivalent to like the Pope. Of greatest honor, he was the highest, most respected figurehead in all Israel. Even though there are people that didn't like him per se, he was the main guy above all main people in Israel. We're told that he tears his clothes, which is a way of basically saying what you've just said is shockingly blasphemous and you deserve to die for this. The point of the matter, what happens here in the story that we cannot miss is the response. The religious leaders radically responded to what Jesus said. So shocked were they that Jesus made this declaration. Let me put it to you the way C.S. Lewis described. The next slide. Again, I can never say it the way C.S. Lewis does, but here's what he says. He says, I'm trying here to prevent anyone in talking about 
what we say about Jesus. Who do we really believe Jesus is? Let me put it to you this way before I read any further. Who you claim Jesus is ought to elicit some type of response from you. I mean, that response might be you tearing your clothes and adamantly refusing to believe in him. You know what? At least you're being honest with the information that's been given to you. Or you will fall on your face in adoration and worship and awe of this king that would do this. But to remain ambivalent, to remain apathetic, to hear this information and be like, huh, that's awesome. What a great God. Doesn't mean that it has actually hit you. It may have shined upon you, but it's never truly penetrated you. Listen to C.S. Lewis the way he put it. He says, I'm trying here to prevent anyone saying the really foolish thing about Jesus. I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. Either this man was and is the Son of God, or else a madman, or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool, you can spit at him and kill him as a demon. Or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord. But, to, but let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. Man, you guys got to think about this. The reality of the picture that Mark tells us in the story here is that the judge of all the earth is being judged. The creator who put breath into Caiaphas's lungs is being condemned by him. Why? That's the question we have to answer. Why would he, if he is all-powerful, if he is all-mighty, if he is all-great and majestic as he claims, if he is a king, then what in the world would a king do subjecting himself, giving himself over to a courtroom that's filled with silly superfluous, crazy accusations against him. Why would he do this? You have to answer that question. And the way that you answer that question will either make you a worshiper or will make you somebody that's just adamantly opposed him, but you cannot remain just simply heartless about it or half emotional about it. It has to impact you. Otherwise, you're not really getting it. So here's the issue. As we go on from this, this basically leads us to the last thing. What does all of this mean for us? What does all of this mean for us? And I think there's several things that you can sort of deduce from what's going on here. But I think the best thing that we can sort of glean from this is what I think Mark actually weaves in the story, what he intends for us to learn by himself. And here's what I mean. Mark, as he tells us the narrative, tells us the story about Jesus on trial, simultaneously, the way he tells the story, interweaves in another storyline. Did you catch that? Did you catch that when you read it? There are two plot lines, two storylines going on. One was the main plot, one was the subplot. Did you catch it? It was a story of Jesus on trial. The secondary plot line, secondary storyline, is Peter on trial. The difference is the trial that Peter was on and under was not in a courtroom, it was around a fire. And the accusers against Peter, bringing their charges against him, were not the powerhouses of society and culture who had any weight or authority over him. It was a little girl. Two trials going on. And here's what's happening. Peter is buckling at the knees. Peter's failing. In short, what's happening takes us back earlier to a passage. And I want you to turn there real quick. Mark chapter 8. We've got to finish this. And take a look at this, what's happening. Because there's a direct correlation between the way Mark writes what's happening here in chapter 14 and Mark chapter 8. And I'll read just to you a, pa- just, uh, to you a passage or a short passage of this. And it's a story of when Jesus began to talk about, um, it was shortly after when Jesus asked his disciples, you know, who do you guys say that I am? Peter stands up, he's like, you're the Christ. You know, again, uh, you're the Messiah. You're the real king. Jesus is like, really? I'm the real king? And by the way, just so that you know, as the king, in accordance with the scripture, I will suffer and die. Listen to what Jesus says in verse 31. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things, that he will be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, the scribes, and be killed after three days, rise again. What Jesus is doing in chapter 8, we're talking chapters earlier, is literally foretelling everything that we just read. And here's what happens. Peter then pulls Jesus aside and starts to rebuke him. 
because you're not going to die. A dead, a dead king is a failed king. That's basically Peter's whole argument. If you're going to be king and you die, then we're not going to be victorious. If you're going to be a king and you're going to die, then we can't overcome and overthrow the evildoers. The problem is, is Peter's a lot like us. He does not understand the depth of who the evildoers are or where evil truly lies. For Peter, evil just simply was embodied by Rome. He failed to see the depth and depravity of his own sinfulness. You know, religious people, people who oftentimes emphasize religion as a way of life, they fail to go deep enough in terms of righteousness. Oftentimes religious people can have a list, and the list might be like, you know, don't go to R-rated movies, you know, don't drink, don't smoke, don't do all sorts of bad things. But the problem is, all of that is way too superficial. It doesn't go deep enough. It, it, it basically uh, turns into kind of a cartoon character, a picture of sin. And what Peter's basically doing is he's like, you know, Jesus, you'll never die, and we will live happily ever after. You'll be king, and we'll reign and rule on either side of you, on your right hand and on your left hand. And here's what Jesus says to him in verse 34. And then he called to the crowd, and he was basically speaking directly to his, his disciples, but he's speaking to the crowd in, in broader context. And here's what he says. If anyone would come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. And whoever would not save his life, whoever uh, would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake, for the gospels, will save it. Verse 36 is, for what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and to forfeit his own life? And here's what I think Jesus is basically saying. Is he's describing, I believe, in very clear picture what's happening in chapter 14. That what we see with Jesus, the king of all kings... The judge of all judges being judged. The creator of all creators being condemned. As we see Jesus, the only one who has the way, who is the truth, who is the life, who is, embodies that, who is that, losing his life. Downstairs, we see Peter, who's also in a court system, but a far lesser court system, seeking to save his life and losing it. Look, Jesus' whole point is he's trying to show us the very, very clear reality that what's happening here is that Jesus himself is being condemned, being judged, even though we are like Peter. I think, the, he, I think Mark writes in such a way for us to somehow read the story and say, I identify with Peter. That's me. I'm just like Peter. I fail all the time. I buckle all the time. I deny Jesus all the time. Not just simply with my life, but with my words, with my actions, with my deeds, the way that I love other people, the way that I fail to love other people, the way that I fail to love my spouse, the way that I fail to love other, others around me, the way that I fail to be generous, the way God's generous. I have this propensity because oftentimes, if you look at it, if you dissect it further, why do we oftentimes do the things that we do? We're trying to save our lives. Why do we lie? We're trying to save our lives. We're trying to save our identity. We don't want to be seen as filthy. Why do we steal? Why do we do the things that we do? Oftentimes, all of these are our little attempts to cling to what little threads of life that we think we have. And in the end, it just only com compounds the filth and the guilt and the stain that we have. And yet what we see in Jesus is a king being judged, a judge on the dock, being condemned. This is what we see for those who deserve to be judged. Now, I said earlier, you have to ask the question, why was Jesus here? If he is all-powerful, if he is the almighty creator, if he is the king of all kings, why would he allow himself to be in a place that's so toxic and so just lethal and so life-taking, not life-giving? And the answer is, he was taking your place. He, the judge, was being judged for those who deserve to be judged. We are the ones that have broken God's law. We are the ones that are deserving. And yet, if you see Jesus doing this, substituting himself in your place for you, 
what that does is it changes your perspective. It changes your heart. It rewires the way that you see things. Let me put it to you the way C.S. Lewis describes it, and I'll finish with this quote. Again, here's what he says. Give up yourself, and you will find your real life. Lose your life, and you will save it. Submit to death, death of your ambitions, favorite wishes every day, and death of your whole body. And in the end, submit with every fiber of your being, and you will find eternal life. Keep nothing back. Nothing that you have not given away will really be yours. Nothing in you that has not died will ever be raised from dead. Look for yourself, and you will find in the long run only hate, uh, only, you will only find hatred, loneliness, despair, rage, ruin, and decay. But look to Christ, and you will find him. And with him, everything else thrown in. Really what C.S. Lewis is really trying to say is what Jesus just said. If you seek to save your life, to hold on to your life, to try to organize your life in such a way where you always come out on top, you will enter into this place of what C.S. Lewis, again, just simply describes as a place of hatred, loneliness, despair, rage, ruin, and decay. But if you look to Jesus, who in your place took upon himself despair, allowed his soul to be decayed, allowed himself to be ostracized, to be broken, to be shamed for you for one simple reason. Because he loves you. He cares for you. He sought to undo that which evil has done. He sought to reverse it, to cancel it, to destroy it without destroying you. This is what we see in the message. And what this does, if you believe that, if you believe Jesus for who he is as a king of all kings, the Lord of all lords, God, come in the flesh the way Jesus described. Like I said, your proper response should either be one of just absolute, a sense of frustration and anger and think that's ludicrous that's silly that's a horrible story it cannot be true but at least you're being honest with the storyline or if you believe it it will radically throw you on your knees to worship him as a god that's totally deserving of your praise because he loves you because he seeks to set you free because he was judged so that you and i who deserve judgment can go free he bore our sin so that we who bear sin every day can be given freedom. How serious does God take sin? So serious to the point that Jesus himself would come into this world and allow himself as judge to be judged, as king to be condemned. Why? For you. Because he loves you. The final thing I'd finish with, I'm done, is this thought that if you believe that's true, the way this changes you on a horizontal level, and if you really believe that you're just as bad as Peter, Jesus' closest, Jesus closest friend who denied him, and if you see yourself as having that propensity in your own life, then how does that cause you to look at other people who deny him? How does that cause you to look at other people that are denying him today? Well, it gives you grace. Because it causes you to realize that the same time Peter was denying Jesus, Jesus wasn't denying Peter. It's absolutely amazing. Jesus was literally standing in the place where Peter should have been standing. Peter was buckling in his little trials. Jesus was holding strong for Peter in the greatest trial. If you believe that Jesus did that for you, that will rewire your heart and change the way that you live and change the way that you look at other people. And it frees you to be loving, to serve, to have grace with those people that are failing. It allows you to show kindness to people that really, in a lot of ways, don't deserve any kindness because of their lifestyle is not worthy of any type of affection or kindness or love. It allows you to truly love your enemies just the way Jesus loved his practicing enemy, Peter, while he was denying him. And that while Peter and we were yet sinners, Christ was dying for us. I want to invite you into that. I want to invite you into a proper response. If Jesus is who he claimed he is, then that should either make you indignant, frustrated, angry, 
It should either make you a worshiper whereby you give God your heart, your life, because just like C.S. Lewis says, you can give him everything. The reason why you can give him your heart is because you can trust him. We don't give our hearts away to just anybody. We give our hearts away to people we trust. Who's more trustworthy than Jesus? To give our hearts away to this king, this king of all kings. But you can't remain ambivalent. You really can't. You can't just remain indifferent. You have to really work these things through and think through them. And I encourage you, if that's where your heart's at, ask God to show you a true revelation of himself. Ask someone to pray for you. We're going to sing. We're going to finish. I'll have the worship team come on up. I'm going to pray. We'll partake of communion. We'll sing. I want to invite you to sing, to give God your praise, your honor. If you're here today uh, and you need prayer for anything that's going on in your life, we'll have a prayer team over up over by the cross. They want to pray for you. Don't pass this opportunity. If there are things going on in your life, you need prayer for anything that's going on. These people love you. They want to pray for you. They want to help you. They just want to be there for you. Don't miss the opportunity. We have some rugs in the front to get down on your faces, on your knees, to just worship Jesus. We have communion at three little areas in the back. If you're a family, if you'd like to go pick up your kids, you want to bring them back in here and do communion with them, you're more than welcome to do that. Let me pray. We'll sing, and then we'll dismiss you guys after we're done. Why don't we all stand? Let me pray over us, and then we'll sing. God, just thank you for your kindness and your grace. And God, we ask you right now that you would just give us a true, proper response to who you are, Jesus. That, God, if our hearts are just not in some form of affection or response to you in a way that's consistent with who you claim to be, then, God, I pray that you would help us to get there. God, I just pray that you would cause that sense of indifference or the sense of just taking that information and putting on the same par as regular everyday news that we see come up in our Facebook news feed. That's just foolish. It's just trivial. God, I pray that the news of Jesus and who he is and what he claimed to do would not simply be reduced with a line item marked trivial. God, I pray that it would impact us and change us and transform us into a loving community of people that have been loved so that we can love. Who've been set free so that we can set others free. Who've been forgiven so that we can at least know how to forgive other people. Help us, we pray, God.